Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, many complain Trudeau wasn't speaking sharp enough when talking about the two Michaels being charged. So he torqued it up and got spanked by the country. Donald Trump's rallies, not as impactful as they once were. What's going on? And working from home, some of us have been fortunate enough to do it. Will this be the norm? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Talking about Canada-China relations and uh, obviously have taken another uh, turn for the worst as uh, China has decided to uh, charge the two Michaels uh, in retaliation for uh, Meng Wanzhou, her, uh, the, the Huawei CFO who uh, is being detained in Vancouver on a U.S. extradition warrant. Uh, she, in the process of completing a doctorate, from what I understand, in one of her $14 million mansions. Meanwhile, the two Michaels are uh, sitting in uh, conditions where the lights are left on uh, 24-7. So uh, what happened over the, uh, uh, just prior to the weekend, the on Friday, the Prime Minister said that he was disappointed on China's, uh, with China's reaction, Christia Freeland even showing uh, stronger language. Uh, he then torqued that up over the weekend, and then China publicly uh, spanked uh, Canada and Justin Trudeau for saying such things and, um, and basically just controlling us the way they seem to be doing and bullying us. Uh, the way they seem to be doing. Uh, earlier today at his press conference, the Prime Minister was asked if uh, there's any sort of hostage trading that's being negotiated. Here's what he had to say. No, we're not considering that. Canada has a strong and independent justice system. We will ensure that it goes through its proper forces and uh, anyone who's uh, considering weakening our values or weakening the independence of our justice system doesn't understand the importance of standing strong on our principles and our values. All right, let's bring in Garnet Jenis, uh, MP, Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, Shadow Conservative Minister on Canada-China Relations and is with us now. Garnet, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you very much. Great to be with you today. So what is your take, Garnet, on the change in tone from the Prime Minister from uh, uh, Friday to over the weekend? And then when he does get a little tougher, uh, it seems we get a spanking from China. Uh, They're bullying us, are they not? Uh, Well, this is what we expect from the the regime in China. Uh, From the perspective of of us in the, the Conservative Party, you know those those last words of the prime minister that you that you just played are are good words, but uh, we need a strong action which reflects the reality of the challenges we face and that takes measures to protect ourselves. Uh, while while this is going on, the government still hasn't said no to Huawei having access to our five G technology, and we're an outlier there. All of our allies by now have recognized uh, the major risks to security associated with giving Huawei five G access. We're still uh, a member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, putting hundreds of millions of Canadian taxpayers' dollars into a Chinese state-controlled uh, infrastructure bank, which is which they are using to advance uh, their foreign policy, their control uh, throughout Asia and uh, and into Africa. Uh, the, the, our foreign affairs minister still has two mortgages, personally valued at over a million dollars combined with the state-owned Bank of China. So we have these continuing points of, of vulnerability where. Uh, the actions just don't match the uh, the, the words. There, there's no doubt that 
that we face a serious threat, as, as does the whole democratic world from the Xi Jinping regime. Uh, and we need a serious response, which is words backed up by action. Uh, what if we obviously start doing some of the things that you have suggested? They just turn the heat up more. I mean, obviously, we're stuck between the United States and China here. If one rolls over, we feel the heat. Well, I don't, I don't know if I would put it quite that way in that, uh, you know, Canada needs to be uh, part of a uh, partnership of like-minded democratic countries that are working together uh, to, to put pressure on uh, the government of China. Uh, remember that the government of China, China doesn't trade with us uh, out of the goodness of, of, uh, of their desires to help us, right? The, the, the trade is, is done because it's beneficial to China. Arguably, they gain more from trade with Canada than Canada gains from trade with, uh, with China. So when we're strong, when we're resolute, and when we're united with our allies, uh, there is a, a limit to how far they're going to go. The way this regime works is uh, they apply pressure when they perceive weakness, when they perceive that that pressure is going to have a, an impact. We see this uh, around the Meng Wanzhou case as well, because, you know, in the, in the early months of this case, you had uh, senior liberals kind of uh, telegraphing that, uh, that, that maybe something like a, a prisoner exchange would be possible. You had comments from uh, people like, uh, like Jean Chrétien, uh, our former ambassador uh, to, um, our, our former ambassador to China, John McCallum, uh, saying things that were, were just way out of step with ultimately where the government uh, wanted to go, and, and he had to, to be removed because of that. Uh, but when you have senior liberals sending these kinds of mixed messages, it's, it's not helpful. So if we're clear, principled, and resolute in our support for, for uh, the rule of law, not only is that the right thing to do, but it puts us in a, in a better position. Uh, obviously, this trial is going to drag out since it is going where it is. This is going to take a while. It's no easy fix here. I mean, how long can we continue to do this? Uh, you're talking specifically in terms of how long, uh, like, are we, are we going to be subject to bullying until, uh, uh, the Huawei CFO eventually is extradited to the United States or they decide to drop the charge that could take years. I, I, I I think we and other countries, uh, in the, in the democratic world are going to continue to be subject to various forms of bullying by the Chinese state. Uh, for as long as the, the Chinese state uh, maintains its current disposition in the world. There's a situation in Hong Kong. There's aggressive incursions across, across the Canada-China border. Uh, there's the, the, the pressure they're putting in, in Canada. Uh, there's, uh, you know, allegations of a, of a cyber attack in Australia. And all of these things are going on at the, at the same time. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, we, we, we need to work on resolving the particulars of the situation, but it's bigger than that. Canada needs uh, to be leading along with our allies and saying we need a, a coordinated response uh, that, that has us standing together and, and identifying concrete measures to respond to the, uh, the, the, the growing aggression of the Xi Jinping uh, regime. This is not the way China operated even five or six years ago. This is, a, this is a, a new, emboldened and aggressive mentality that we're seeing from the Chinese state. Uh, and, uh, and, and we can't wish it away or think that you know the, the particulars of one case are gonna are gonna end that. Uh, you know before before it was the the two Michaels, it was the Garretts, and uh, it, after the two Michaels, if we don't deal with the the fundamental issues underlying this, then we're gonna have to worry about more Canadians detained and more hostage diplomacy. It it, it has become unfortunately the way this regime operates. Uh, you bring up a valid point too. Are, are Canadians safe there now? Well, uh, I mean, I I think. 
I, what, what you are going to see is uh, Canadians who are in, living in Hong Kong, Canadians who are living in China, uh, start to look at the, at the uh, political conditions uh, and kind of reevaluate how they, how they want to proceed. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's no doubt that when you live in China, you are subject to the arbitrary whims of the state. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, I guess that's a, that's a choice. So you take your chances. Anybody's free to make, but well, it, it, uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not implying that, that, you know, you're, you're on your own, right. Canada obviously, uh, needs to be there to stand up for and protect, protect their citizens. But, uh, you know, I do think, you know, this, this is one of those, those cases where we can see it's, it's, it's bad for China when people don't feel safe there, when people don't, uh, want to travel there, uh, or, or feel nervous living there. Uh, but those are the conditions that the Chinese state is, is establishing through these actions. Should allies be doing more to speak out against uh, the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party's aggression? Um, e- e- even with the detention of the two Michaels, you know, not many said too much or have said too much against China publicly. I mean, we all know they stand behind us, but they're sort of silent partners. Pompeo spoke out. Uh, I think today about it again, but but do allies need to do more to say, hey, if you want a piece of this, this isn't how we play. Uh, yes, I I would like to see more countries do more, but we have to all do more together on all of the issues. Uh, this is what the Chinese state tries to do, which is they try and pick off targets one at a time. Uh, they say, okay, oh, you're you're our friend today, while well, we're going to go after somebody else. And then they, they reverse the dynamic to try and uh, create the, the greatest possible differential and the greatest uh, possible pressure. Uh, we need to try and, and, uh, and push back against that dynamic. I'm uh, one of the co-chairs of a newly launched organization called IPAC, which is an uh, interparliamentary alliance on China. Uh, it, uh, it includes, for instance, Senator Mendenez and Senator Rubio from the U.S., legislators trying to work together to propel this kind of uh, cross-border, cross-party cooperation, uh, and and we need more forums like that uh, where countries are standing together, working together uh, to to uh, respond to, to Chinese state aggression in a, in a coordinated way. Um, how has this changed worldview of China, and are they not aware of that? Um, you know, at once China was the golden goose, everybody wanted a piece of it, everybody was bowing to China, everybody, you know, wanted wanted their business and such. How has has that changed, and are they not aware of that? Well, I think things are changing, and there will be many people in China who are aware of it. And, and, and yes, it absolutely has a cost in terms of China's global reputation, in terms of its, uh, its economy, in terms of the opportunities that it, that it has. What, what you've seen uh, in the last few years is a, a transition from a uh, kind of a uh, uh, more oligarchic, uh, one one party state kind of structure to a real centralization of power in the hands of of one person in the hands of Xi Jinping. And uh, at one time, the mantra was China's content to hide its strength and bide its time. But Xi Jinping has really revolutionized that centralizing power, uh, not hiding, not biding, uh, being aggressive on on uh, many different fronts. So uh, that is uh that is, I think, a lot of people are recognizing in China coming at a at a real cost, and it, it, part of that cost is is a loss of whatever limited uh, freedoms had had existed, uh, you know, previously. Uh, 
Um, but but this is this is the particular agenda of the the particular regime uh, right now. Uh, has Canada become too dependent on China? Is it too late in the sense that they're too interwoven in our economy now? Well, it's, it's, it's not too late. Now is a good time for us to take the, the kinds of actions we need in a, in a collaborative, coordinated way with, uh, with other countries. It is a very different dynamic than we had during the, uh, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, where with the, with, with, at that time, there was kind of a real uh, economic uh, and, and otherwise separation between the kind of two, two poles of, uh, of the world. Now there's, there's much more integration, but that does uh, flow both ways. I think what we need to do is think about how to uh, limit and address the issue of Chinese state interference in our own country, but then also think about how we can advance our values uh, and, and work collaboratively with, uh, with people that are uh, trying to, to make the case for freedom, for, for human rights, for rule of law, um, for democracy. Uh, we, can, uh, we, we, can, we can use the greater integration that exists now uh, to, to our advantage, uh, but we have to make sure that the flow of influence and that the, the impact of that integration are, are working for us and to the advantage of our concerns, not working against us. Um, are you surprised? Obviously, Pompeo came out and, and spoke against the, the, the formal charges being laid against the two Michaels. Are you surprised they aren't doing more to help us? Are you surprised they haven't said more about this? I mean, I, I don't even think this is on Trump's radar, other than when he made the comment that, you know, if it helps him get a trade deal, we might be able to work something out, which, of course, has come back to haunt everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the American political system is, um, it's quite complex, right? Because you have uh, the far more visible actors uh, that are pursuing different ob- objectives. Uh, there is, I think, strong momentum uh, within the House and the Senate in a bipartisan way for stronger action when it comes to uh, response to Chinese state aggression. Issues uh, that in Canada maybe conservatives and liberals are more likely to disagree on vis-a-vis China. In the U.S., they're, uh, they're matters of, of bipartisan consensus at the legislature uh, level. Um, you know, the, the disposition of the president, it's, uh, it, it's more difficult to know because uh, there, there have been comments he's made that, that seem to suggest that so much of, of, uh, of, of these issues are seen in his mind through the prism of trade. And I think it's important to understand that uh, that security, that human rights are, are more important than trade. And if we uh, don't address some of the security issues, then, uh, then trade will just be a, a tool for kind of more, more infiltration. Um, so so it, it, it's, it, it's still kind of an open question where the, the president and his administration are going to go on some of these things. But, but I do see a lot of momentum at the House and Senate level around doing more on a, on a whole spectrum of fronts, uh, human rights, security, uh, standing up for, for uh, people that are detained. Uh, and it, it's very encouraging to see. Again, I, I mentioned uh, the IPAC group, uh, Senator Rubio from the Republican, Senator Mendenez uh, leading that, uh, Senator Mendenez from the Democrats kind of leading that and, and working together as well as many other actors.
Should uh, Canada have already decided on the Huawei 5G? It seems that the private companies are coming out ahead of government on this and saying, now we've just decided to to leave them out. Uh, Is industry going to make this decision for the prime minister? Uh, Well, it it makes no sense that the government has left it so long. And, uh, uh, you know, they're... The industry, many actors within industry have been sending the right signals, but uh, there's there's a lot that could still happen unless the government actually puts a, a marker down. Every other country uh, is there uh, within kind of the, that network of, of like-minded, uh, uh, certainly within the Five Eyes, for example. Like, uh, it, it, it just, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that we've been uh, ragging the puck on this and uh, it's it's time for the prime minister to show some real leadership. You know, it's it's uh, it's easy to throw out uh, those words that he threw out today. But you know, I mentioned the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank still giving hundreds of millions of dollars to them. Uh, the the failure to make a decision on 5G. Um, you know, the the continuing issue with the foreign affairs uh, minister's uh, personal mortgage. Uh, these are these are things that that are concrete and need to be resolved. Uh, Garnet Genesis has been with us, MP for Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, Shadow Conservative Minister on China, or sorry, Canada-China relations. Garnet, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. It's been great to be with you today. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News, talk about what's happening uh, south of the border. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, Reggie, uh, over and above what's going on south of the border, obviously up here uh, in the last couple of days, uh, news breaking that the two Michaels, uh, Michael Spaver and Covery, have been had their charges formalized and such, and the process has begun. Uh, we heard Mike Pompeo say something about that today. Is this playing at all in the United States, considering what's going on? Uh, it's not. It's not making any of the network news. It wasn't uh, making any of the kind of top 10 minutes on the morning uh, cable news shows. This is still something that is mostly a Canadian story or at least a Canada versus China story, despite the fact that this all happened because of a U.S. request for an arrest. You know, we did hear from Pompeo. We did see uh, that uh, that kind of um, announcement or release that came from the State Department. But outside of that, it has been silenced from anyone inside the administration. Is considering uh, uh, Donald Trump's ongoing uh, chatter about China, is anything about the Huawei CFO ever mentioned? The fact that we are detaining her for an extradition hearing to the United States? Does that does that even resonate in the States? Nope, this is not a conversation that takes place uh, in the media. It's not a conversation that is uh, talked about openly anywhere on Capitol Hill. The president uh, has created his own kind of problems when it comes to China, both on comments linked to trade and comments linked to the coronavirus situation in the United States. And that typically takes the kind of brunt uh, of the of the attention. Uh, and oftentimes it falls short of reaching anywhere beyond the borders of that. Uh, you know, this is a serious situation for Canada. This is obviously a serious situation for both Trudeau and for relations between Canada and China. And given the fact that the United States played such a, a significant role in this and the fact that they're now staying so quiet with the exception of this kind of, uh, you know, uh, too little, too late potential message that came from the State Department, it still really is not a talker in the United States. 
All right. Obviously, uh, the Bolton book has made lots of uh, a chatter in the United States, including uh, the president trying to block that. That obviously didn't happen. Is that just drawing more attention to all of this? How credible is uh, Bolton's comments at that t- at this time? Well, I mean, look, there are criticisms against John Bolton for not having come forward earlier this year during uh, any of the impeachment uh, uh, kind of uh, proceedings that were taking place on Capitol Hill. Uh, he's critical of Democrats for saying that they were too narrow in their optics when it came to impeachment. But Democrats are fighting back, saying you're the one who held the information back from us. We couldn't have expanded our scope unless you had spoken. So it's a back and forth and both sides are taking criticism. But also it's worth noting here that a lot of the stuff that we're hearing from John Bolton echoes or at least sings the same tune as the comments and criticisms of the chaos inside the White House that we've heard and read in numerous books from previous administration officials. This is stuff that, you know, it's giving us kind of a better idea as to what we can see and the rumors that we've heard. The president is chalking some of this up to being fake and false. Uh, and misinformation, but at the same time, he's still chalking it up to being uh, classified information. Uh, and there's a you know a back and forth going. Well, which one is it? Is it fake or is it classified? So it, 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 w- w- the excuses for John Bolton not uh, bringing this forward during the impeachment. I mean, many have said he was trying to cash in on the book instead. So does that reduce his credibility? The fact that he didn't come forward before with this. Well, I mean, look, he already had a credibility factor when it came to a lot of Democrats and when it came to a lot of Republicans. You know, this was a very hawkish figure in a number of administrations that didn't have a lot of friends on the extremity of the fringe of who he hung out with and who he talked to. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Democrats are still trying to hang John Bolton out to dry by saying, you know, you're criticizing us for impeachment, but you said that you wouldn't talk to us unless we were able to get a, a subpoena for your uh, testimony. That possibly could have taken months, if not you know, more than a year to come to fruition. Uh, and they felt that he was simply playing a game. But it also would have been uh, kind of for nothing since we knew that the Senate was already not going to call him at all. Republican-controlled Senate wasn't going to call him. Does it throw his credibility on the line? Possibly. But does he actually speak about things that have kind of been whispered about in Washington and potentially have a play uh, on voters later this fall? That's still a possibility. Uh, There's been a few of these. Uh, does Does this one have more staying power because of the proximity of the election? I mean, it, it does have some staying power, and it also sheds some light on on the president uh, when it comes to his ability to, you know, lead a nation, but also uh, on the president's, uh, you know, simple basic knowledge uh, of the world. There are some people that are mm-hmm. saying, look, the information inside this book paints uh, a picture of a president who simply doesn't understand what the realities are between the United States, uh, its ally nations, and the United States and hostile nations. The president appears in this book to be cozying up to some of the dictators, while at the same time breaking the chains that have been holding allies together, uh, you know, essentially since the First and Second World War. So there is a possibility that this book could create some waves that could potentially draw some additional independents or possibly Republicans uh, into the Democratic side. But that's still many months away, and there's still any number of controversies that could come up and wipe this book off the shelves. All right. We know that uh, the president has been in campaign mode ever since pretty much he took office doing various rallies around the country at various points. Obviously, that being brought to a standstill with COVID-19 and such. Uh, the first one on Tulsa, uh, in Tulsa over the weekend, uh, lots of chatter about how it wasn't full. How is all of this playing in the United States? Well, I mean, look, the president, uh, you know, obviously took uh, a hit to his ego uh, walking away, uh, you know, slightly embarrassed from this 
rally that he held, this first rally in several months, because the turnout was simply not what they were chalking it up to be. The president ginned up this event that was going to have potentially 20,000 people inside and tens of thousands of people outside, and it simply didn't materialize. Uh, There are different conversations inside the administration as to what possibly happened, whether or not they were trolled by people on TikTok, whether or not people were afraid uh, of catching some, uh, you know, uh, a coronavirus while they were in close settings with other people. There were a number of factors playing against the president, uh, and they're now actively trying to do cleanup or at least whitewash uh, the weekend that was to try and look past it uh, and pretend it never happened. So is it all of those things that you said, Reggie, for the light turnout, or is is the tide turning here, or is it just people are too afraid of getting sick? Well, I mean, look, it's a combination of things. Did the Internet completely keep away people from going to this event? Probably not. doesn't have that kind of a reach. Did coronavirus play a significant part in this? It probably did, considering that there were health officials in Tulsa and through the state of Oklahoma that were talking about uh, their increasingly high numbers. They were posting record high numbers in the days leading up to and now the days after this event. So there was some fear uh, about what might actually happen if people show up to this rally. Uh, the president also played a role in this. He's trying to chalk it up to simply being the reason so many people didn't show up is because there were, you know, quote unquote, bad people protesting outside. Uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that while there were protests in Tulsa, they were significantly smaller than anything we've seen on the national level for the last several weeks. And according to police, they were mostly peaceful. So there are a number of kind of pieces of pie that are filling up the plate as to what happened here. Uh, you know, the president's just going to cherry pick and see which ones work best for his own answers. So what does this mean for the future of such rallies? Uh, and how do they make sure that the attendance situation is corrected? Well, I mean, look, this is going to be a conversation that they're going to have to hold going forward. You know, the president kind of downplayed coronavirus and the, 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 the threat of this ongoing pandemic at the rally by, you know, making fun of it and using inappropriate Uh, you know, racially uh, inflammatory language to discuss the coronavirus, but not actually talking about the the ongoing situation, the sheer number of people that are dying on a daily basis and the number of uh, the the infection rate that continues to rise. He bypassed all of that information. That might not sit well with people in other states and cities uh, as they try to expand the reach of these uh, rallies going forward. You know, there are a couple that are planned on the schedule for the next couple of weeks, uh, but it's unclear if they're going to be able to pick up the big numbers that they once saw solely because there is an active threat that the administration is ignoring. Uh, the fact that the, it, it's it's been hard for them to get a handle on the COVID-19 and the spread of it and such, how is that changing people's perception of the president? Does it appear that he can't get a handle on this, uh, on the virus? And, and even the comments he made at the, uh, at the rally where he said, you know, they're doing too much testing. We need to slow down the testing. Uh, are people confident in his ability to keep them safe? I mean, I'm sure that there are people in the president's base that are confident in the way that he's been handling this crisis. Uh, but there are a growing number of people in both parties who fear that the president is mishandling the situation worse so now than he do- uh, was at the beginning. At the beginning of this crisis, he was ignoring what was going on. During the, you know, the, the middle part and where we are right now in the crisis, he's actively ignoring uh, the threat that, that this, that this uh, pandemic uh, shows us. I was just speaking with, uh, with a doctor who uh, used to be an advisor to Barack Obama, and she said that the comments that the president made, notably about testing, uh, people should have found that morally repugnant because, A, uh, the president is not a doctor and he shouldn't be you know, trying to scale back testing but also that the president was giving factually incorrect information about testing. The more people you test, 
that doesn't mean you have more cases. The more people you test, according to doctors, uh, the fewer cases you should have because you should be isolating people and putting them into quarantine, effectively lowering the risk. Uh, for the rest of people around them. So the president's handling of the situation could potentially uh, turn people against him in the months to come. I can't let you go asking one quick question again about the commotion that has been caused in regard and around Bubba Wallace, a black NASCAR driver, uh, has spoken out very recently in regard to the Confederate flag, a race down in Alabama. Uh, Rained out yesterday, will run later today, but they found a noose, his team found a noose, uh, in his garage. How is this resonating in the U.S.? Well, I mean, look, this it's an unfortunate situation, uh, and it is not the, you know, it's not an isolated incident. There have been a number of cases in Alabama over the last several weeks where there have been nooses uh, that have been found tied to trees in and around either Montgomery or uh, smaller cities throughout the state. This is an ongoing problem, and it shows that there is an ongoing kind of uh, uh, racial war that is underway across parts of the United States, partially being inflamed by the president's language and rhetoric when it comes to things like uh, Confederate soldiers and, and the names of bases and, uh, you know, this, this fear that potentially erasing a part of the United States history could, could, you know, cause some kind of blowback. The president plays a large role in this by not working to either mend uh, the issues or by bringing people together uh, to have an open dialogue. The incident that happened with NASCAR is an incredibly unfortunate incident, and it will be investigated. Uh, And that's why you have uh, a bipartisan group of people on Capitol Hill actively working to try and bring this country together as the president very quickly tries to rip it apart. Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. COVID-19 has certainly created a new world. Many uh, have asked when it would get back to normal, and uh, it certainly isn't uh, hard to figure out that uh, the new normal will be a lot different than what the old normal is. Uh, Many are talking about what life will look like post-COVID-19, especially with many that are working from home. Uh, What does that mean? Will they stay working from home? How does it change the way businesses uh, decide who stays, who who goes, who works from home, who doesn't, uh, and what's the new footprint of every company going to look like? Let's bring in Dr. Richard LeBlanc, Professor of Governance, Law, and Ethics, Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. He is with us now. Richard, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. So, Richard, what are they talking about right now in boardrooms across uh, the country? What, what sort of conversations are they having? Well, the main one is uh, safety and security in phase two. Now, we know that um, phase two and three are, are phase two is starting on Wednesday, but that still does not include office space, um, and uh, which is phase three. New York uh, has opened offices today, but uh, companies are still expecting only 10 to 20 percent occupancy. So uh, companies and boardrooms are talking about uh, contact tracing, uh, uh, testing, uh, sanitization of the workplace, social distancing within the workplace, use of masks, etc. And also they're talking about staggering uh, 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 working from home. And some significant companies, including Facebook and, and Bank of Montreal and Shopify, uh, and others, uh, Morgan Stanley, um, have said that a, a significant portion will work uh, from home on, uh, on, a, on a permanent basis. Uh, so this has caused, and this started with, with Facebook, this has caused 
uh, uh, boards uh, uh, and companies to reevaluate uh, uh, compensation. Um, and what Zuckerberger said is that you know if you are working remotely and you're not and you and you have relocated from Silicon Valley to you know, uh, uh, another American city where uh, the cost of rent and, and, and housing is, signi- is significantly less, then we are going to uh, uh, consider compensation changes. Um, and calculators are beginning to develop uh, right now because employees are, are quite correctly putting forth arguments. Listen, I've, I've undergone um, uh, costs uh, for office uh, equipment for uh, uh, computers, for uh, you know, working at home, for electricity, for internet, um, and those types of costs should be remunerated by employers. And employers are all, also arguing, you know, if 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 you can work anywhere, and I think I gave the example of if, if you're working, for example, in Hamilton, and and the company is in Toronto, uh, the cost of a home in Hamilton is is 500. The average cost of a home is 550,000. The average cost of a home is is 1.23 million in Toronto. So geographic proximity is being looked at uh, right now by by companies for possible uh, salary adjustments and also uh, remunerating employees or reimbursing employees for direct incremental costs for for working at home. So there's there's been a recalibration of the nature of of of, of the working relationship. So it sounds that people are con- going to continue to work from home that they will make less. Is well, that yeah, possibly, but not necessarily. Um, I mean, uh, it just it opens up talent is 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 yeah. what it does. Um, so it's not a foregone conclusion that people. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I, I wouldn't want to leave listeners with the impression that it's 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 that the that the relationship has changed, uh, particularly the commute, uh, the use of resources. Uh, proximity if you decide to relocate. So I think what Zuckerberg has, has done is he's put that into the public debate, but it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that, you know, if you're working at home that, you're, that you're, your, your base or incentive pay will, will, will lessen. It's, it's just that uh, there, 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 there could be a reconsideration and a calibration uh, given the, the nature of that change. Uh, many have said that COVID-19 has made society rethink what's important, um, uh, priorities towards smaller life, whatever that will mean. Um, will companies use this as an excuse to downsize as opposed to make uh, life better for uh, employees? I remember reading something way back in the 1980s that by this time, uh, you'll only be working a four-day week because techno- technology will be so great that, that you know you, you just won't have to do the work. And obviously what ended up happening is they fired your coworker and you ended up doing their job. Well, so are we going awesome. to see the same thing here? Yeah, I think we're going to, I mean, I, you know, working from home comes with a cost. Is, is, the assumption has often been with businesses that working from home re- results in a, a lessening of productivity. But what they have found is that, in, in fact, that's not the case. Other problems uh, have, have crept up, such as mental health, such as depression, such as quality of life, such as, uh, you know, a social need uh, to see your colleagues. Uh, visual cues, like you, you, you can't get mm-hmm. uh, visual cues on, on Zoom or a video uh, platform versus an in-person meeting. So quality of life and I, and I think treatment of employees and, and, and back to bringing certain key employees into the office 
and giving them giving them comfort that uh, the, that the, that the cleaning, the PPE, the internal controls over uh, over over risks have been adequately taken care of. I think that that's front and center for many uh, for many boards and, and senior management right now is so is, is care and safety of employees and customers. Sorry. So basically, if you if you're an employer and you have an employee that can work from home, is that where you're aiming? Is that where you're going? Yeah, and I think that the implication there is if it's the nature of the job and and uh, innovation and creativity sometimes you need that water cooler conversation but if yeah. it's an autonomous task and and it's 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 you know you need focus then working at home might be might be entirely appropriate and that has implications for office space mm-hmm. uh, and for density and for use of of, uh, of of transportation so i think we're just at the beginning of this and i think it's emerging but I think what I'm hearing, at least from, from the boards that I advise, is, is keep an open mind and approach it from, approach it from a, to, a, a, a total uh, a point of view as opposed to dollars and, and, and cents. It's not all about dollars and cents. There are, are non-financial gains and there are non-financial costs of working at home. And we're just, begin, we're just beginning down this journey. But I think what it has done is it has accelerated remote work. Uh, yeah. Even at the university, for example, my, my numbers, I run a graduate program, my numbers have gone up because I'm attracting students from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm also attracting faculty uh, from, from all over the world to teach some of these courses that are online. So I think what, what COVID has done, if, 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 if there is a benefit, is, is that it really has accelerated uh, remote work and remote learning. And we're just at the beginning of, 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 of thinking about this. Will this eventually, or or will it uh, plainly save businesses money? You talked about increased productivity, uh, smaller footprint with less rent. Would that mean saving money for the majority of these companies? Yes, and I think it is. It will shift that obligation to employees and that reward to employees. Uh, CRA, for example, has very minimal deductions for an employee working at home because mm-hmm. the assumption is often that that the people that employees go into work and the, and the people that get that deduction is the employer. So I think it will there will be a shifting, there will be a recalibration and and cost savings. I mean, you just think of the commute. I mean, if you're living in Hamilton yeah. or, or Ajax or Pickering, you know, an hour and a half each way. I mean, think think about that on on an annual basis. Uh, the, the the savings that the, in in productivity that can occur from 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 remote work. So it's not necessarily the negative that people thought it was at the at the at the beginning of the pandemic. What about the four day week? Is there any uh, any credibility there? Is does there is there a chance of a four day week in some in this somewhere? Yeah, I think that the you know the prime minister has toyed with that idea. I think it it, it is starting in New Zealand. You know, it's not necessarily. Do you work Monday to Friday, nine to five? Is do, do you get a reasonable amount of work done that is being expected of you, and in a way that has the flexibility and the quality of life that you like? So it might not be a four-day week. It might be, you know, it might be flex schedule. And traditionally, business people have have frowned upon flex scheduling because they think it's shirking, it's 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 distraction. But it's not. I mean, as I said earlier, the productivity losses have just not been there. Um, so so working from home is not necessarily. Uh, a negative. It, it, it's a positive. Well, it's interesting when I tell people I've been broadcasting from home for 15 weeks now. They, <laughs> I didn't know that, Scott. <laughs> that's great. Uh, look at the, and and it's like you know this. It, it is great. The technology is yeah. incredible. Yeah. But I'm working as my wife is also working from home. We're working way harder than we were well, before I, because we're we're, we're glued it's to like the you're desk. Not on we're, vacation. If, if no. You're, you're, you're juggling and and I'm at my home office.
office as well, Scott. So there, the assumption is that you know you're, you're, the, you're the off. will be less. It's not. It's more. Absolutely. Yeah. People get the impression you're bagging off and it's like, man, it's the opposite. You're glued to your desk. Uh, Dr. Richard LeBlanc has been with us, professor of governance, law and ethics, faculty of liberal arts and professional studies at York University. Fascinating discussion, uh, discussion, Richard. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Take care. Uh, Let's bring in Laura Vanderkamp, author off the clock, feel less busy while getting more done. And she is with us now. Laura, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. I'll ask you the same question I asked our last guest. What do you think they're talking about in boardrooms right now? What are the conversations they're having? Well, the world of work has changed so much in the last three, four months. I mean, it's like the acceleration of a decade of change uh, into a short period of time because we've just had this huge crisis. Um, And, you know, no one would wish a pandemic on the world, I would hope, but it has definitely forced some changes and things that that really probably needed to change is will this benefit the employees or will this benefit the employers and i used the example with our last guest i remember reading something in 80 in the 80s that said with technology you know you'll only be working a four-day week you won't have to do this you won't have to do that but eventually what happened is no your coworker was let go and you just do all of the jobs now is that's what's going to happen here is the technology has given us a great break it's given a not, not a great break but certainly has allowed us more uh life options but those will be taken away because it's a way to save money well, I think technology can be used for good or evil, as we, as we see in many yeah. cases. Um, and, and really, people have to establish their own boundaries. We all need to have the sort of career capital where we can push back on things that aren't working for us. With technology, what you see is that it just allows for more flexibility in terms of time and location. So the upside is that people have been able to work from home for the last few months. And before that, this was certainly a trend that was growing, which in many cases is great. You know, people can spend time that they would have been commuting with their families or exercising or seeing friends. Um, People can... Or just doing more work. But that's the thing. They can also spend the time doing more work. And in, in the past, it might have been slightly more difficult for your boss to reach you at, say, 8 p.m. Um, there would have been the, the having to call your home phone, which would have you know been a little bit of a barrier to it. But, you know, you can email you at 8 p.m. with no problem whatsoever, and people feel they need to respond. So, yes, technology allows for more flexibility. On the other hand, it then gets rid of some boundaries that, you know, many people probably would have preferred to keep. What about the four-day week? How does it fit into all of this? Well, it's an idea. Um, what it gets at is this idea that, uh, I mean, and it made more sense when more people are commuting. I mean, right now, so many people have been working from home that it's, it's everything's up in the air in terms of when people are working. Um, but certainly in terms of minimizing commutes, a lot of people would have preferred to commute four days a week and then have a day off, maybe work mm-hmm. four longer days. Um, you know, what it also gets at is this idea that when you are working 40 hours in an office, you are inevitably not actually working 40 right. hours. Yeah. Um, there are, there's time, you know, devoted to conscious breaks, which is great. You know, people have to eat. People have to do other things, maybe move around, get some exercise, walk around the building, whatever. Um, but then there's also time that people just aren't working at all. Um, and yet there's a very strong norm that you need to be there from nine to five, whether you're doing anything or not. Uh, and the idea is that if you had less time, but some of the same 
requirements, people would be more efficient or people could work longer days on the day they were working and have um, a day off for the things that as it is now, people often take time off of work to do. Um, so it would just recognize that. Like if you had a four day week and you need to schedule doctor and dentist appointments and things like that, you will do them on your day off. Whereas if you are working five yeah. days a week, you're going to have to take time off to do it. So it's just recognizing something of the obvious there. How are employers going to decide who goes back and uh, who stays home? Is it basically if you can stay home, you will? Um, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know how this is all going to play out because, I mean, I before this all happened, I had so many conversations with business leaders who were interested in this idea of remote work, but were absolutely convinced that it could never work for them. Like yeah. somehow their employees were different from everyone else and, you know, they needed to be in the office. Um, which this pandemic has completely blown that apart. We've seen that many jobs could be done from anywhere um, if they needed to be. And so I really think it's going to be a conversation every organization is going to have to have. Like, does it make sense for us to all will be back in the office or maybe there could be some sort of hybrid, you know, that people work in the office two to three days per week. They work at home two to three days per week and get the best of both worlds that way. Uh, will employee employers be able to tell? Can they tell? Because everybody's wondering, you know, I, I was saying this with our last guest, if you're staying from home, you must be bagging off. I mean, are employers aware who's working, who's not working, even when they're working from home? I mean, isn't that something that's easily measured? You can always tell who is doing their job and who is engaged and who isn't. I mean, people have this, there was a strange idea, which I think, again, was before March 2020, people had that somehow if you let a high performer work from home, he's going to suddenly start watching Netflix all day. And that's just completely ridiculous. Like somebody who's engaged with their work, excited about their work, if anything, they're going to wind up working longer hours when they're working at home because there's less of an obvious, you know, push to leave. Like the, the lights yeah. go off at the office. And, and that's the way it is. That's the way it is for my wife and I right now. Like, yeah. because you're, you know, oh, you don't have to drive to work. Well, you spend that time at the desk. You're just doing more. And for us, it's trying to find that balance. Yeah, and because there's no obvious end to the day, um, people who work from home well put their own end of the workday in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's that kids need to be picked up somewhere or send a center home, uh, but it could be anything else. It's like, well, I have a you know non-negotiable out working in my garden at six thirty p.m. It, you know, but something that tells you that the day is over is is really key to sanity when you're working from home. So uh, when do you think this will start to roll out? When do you think that we'll start to see uh, something become permanent as as opposed to just a reaction to COVID-19? Well, uh, this is the big question of when anything is getting back to normal. I mean, we don't know. It's going to go in fits and starts. Um, I think we'll probably see a lot of the hybrid model. Um, of people working from home sometimes and coming into the office for sort of bigger events as people feel comfortable. Uh, but I think as people do that, they're going to start to see that actually that works fine. Um, yeah. That yes, there are upsides to meeting in person. Um, there are definitely upsides to being in the same physical location, but there's a point of diminishing returns for that. And for many kinds of work, that point of diminishing returns is far under 40 hours, five days a week. So what do you think the biggest transition, the biggest challenge is going to be as we make this transition? We pretty much already made it, but as we continue to do so, and I guess perhaps make it permanent in some scenarios, what's the biggest challenge? Well, I think one of them is figuring out how people can effectively collaborate and yet still have the upsides of remote work. 
And, and there's lots of different experiments that are going on. And, and in general, organizations that care about their employees and ask how people are doing and think about it are going to do better than those that don't do those things. Um, what you know, I'm seeing from some organizations is on the days that people are able to work remotely, there is core hours that are set. Like everyone needs to be available from, let's say, 10 to 2. And around that, people can work sort of as works with their particular schedule. Um, so if they'd like to work early, so they're available for, say, kids in the afternoon, that's great. Um, if they're the sort of person who likes to stay up late and is pretty useless before 10 a.m., well, they could log their hours after the core hours. Yeah. Um, and that's the way that people can get the upsides of flexibility that come from working remotely and yet still acknowledge that they need to uh, interact pretty much in near real time with their coworkers. Laura Vanderkam has been with us, author of Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done, discussing what work will look like in a post-COVID-19 world. Laura, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Man, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out uh, at the end of COVID-19. All right, good news for uh, Torontonians and those in Peel region. They are joining the rest of us in Stage 2 coming up this Wednesday. Unfortunately for Windsor, uh, not the case. They stay in Stage 1. And also, uh, I think it's the eighth day where we've had under 200 cases uh, in Ontario, which is good news. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He is a health, a health policy expert and is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks. So your thoughts about Toronto moving into stage two? We know that there's still some issues there. Uh, time for them? Yes, absolutely time for them. I think people of Toronto are, are really excited to this reopening, and it's great news all around. I think that the, the reports that are coming out today are really positive in our fight against COVID-19 and this pandemic that has taken over our lives the past few months. And all the figures are pointing towards we're heading in the right direction. People' efforts have paid off, and we just need to continue course for now. I know people are sick and tired of me saying that, but that's just to give everybody the hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're almost there. We just got to stay on course. Uh, the fact that we've spent uh, a few days now, I think it's eight days below 200. Uh, we haven't really seen too many spikes of late. Um, uh, how do you interpret that? Because everybody's still waiting for that second wave. Mm-hmm. So the number of new COVID-19 cases in Ontario right now reached a nearly three-month low on Monday morning today with 161 new infections reported, which is great. So we're under the 200 mark. Uh, it just tells us that we're, you know, we're doing better with our public health interventions. People are listening to it. But I also want to caution, Scott, that like we're still seeing uh, issues with people gatherings. We've heard reports this past weekend of Cherry Beach, where there was, and here in Toronto, where there was massive number of crowds together with no masks and no social distancing. That does alarm us. I think we need to be careful about a second wave that might occur if people don't continue to observe these interventions. Uh, but it, otherwise, I think we're seeing lo- less number of patients in our hospitals, less number of patients in ICU units, more testing. And so the message today for me is uh, please get tested as much as, as as fast as possible and as soon as possible. So I took the responsibility on myself to get tested yesterday. And I can tell you, Scott, as Will pointed out on your show last week, it was super easy. You mm. go on the website, you find that assessment center, and you go, and it's very fast. Five minutes, I was in and out of there. All right. So 100 days into this, uh, you know, I guess it depends on what day you uh, you actually determine the actual start of this. Like, it's probably different for everybody. But what about the next 100 days? What are the next 100 days going to look like? as Because here we are in stage two now. Um, any idea what the next three months, four months will look like? 
an excellent question and one that I engage quite frequently with my colleagues about is trying to predict. That's what we're doing. You know, we're trying to predict what the future would look like. And the reason why I say that is that this is not based on like, you know, sound evidence of what we know the future to look like with COVID. If anything, it's an evolving, changing situation day by day. But I guess what the next three, four months would look like, it's like driving, there's a stop sign. We're going to keep driving and we're going to stop at certain intersections to figure out how to move forward. Is it, are we allowed to proceed? Uh, I think our big milestone right now, Scott, is school openings in, in September. Uh, and the evidence so far is looking that we are going to reopen school. And the evidence actually indicates that it is okay to open up schools, that they don't seem to be as effective as we thought. The evidence there is very mixed on how effective school closures were in our fight against COVID-19. And actually that it might be a better option to open them to allow the social support for our, for our younger generations who go to school. So I think that's the big question coming forward. Uh, and then with the flu season in the winter, that's going to be another question about our health system's resilience. Can we handle both COVID-19 and the flu? Because the reality, Scott, is that COVID-19 is not over. It's not gone. It will remain in our communities. It's just the numbers will change over time. Uh, the government saying for uh, students, teachers, boards to be ready for three various options come, come September, uh, working at home still, uh, working in class, or a combination of the two. Now they're talking about at this point, and again, it's still a while away, uh, of every other day and about 15 students per class. Do you think by September we could see a normal situation? Well, as normal as it could be in the sense that it, it, it's instead of every other day in restricted class sizes that it is just a normal September? Or, or do you see uh, certainly will be an, an every other day situation in 90 days or, or, uh, or four months? I think that reviewing all the evidence on school closures, which, which is what I've been doing, because I've been really curious about this idea of like, what is the safest way forward? And, and the evidence keeps telling us that school closures can be effective, but are not, the evidence is so uncertain uh, that there is actually more benefit of opening them because they allow that social support as long as they're mitigated risks. And by that, I mean is that we put in place a public schools, uh, hand sanitizing stations, cleaning uh, stations, we, we distance desks from each other. We put in place strategies to really try to prevent as much as possible, a, ma- a, ma- a wide outbreak in those settings. But again, this is specific to high schools and elementary schools. We already know that our university systems uh, have moved online till the new year. Uh, and so the question remains as to whether that will also follow suit with all of the educational system at this point. Um, many were saying that it is important uh, to get the kids back to school for social reasons, mental health and such. Are we underestimating the hit we're going to take from a mental health standpoint uh, in this or even now? Absolutely. I'm an educator. I'm a part-time faculty professor at many universities in Canada. I teach courses to many, many students. And let me tell you, Scott, as an educator, I can already see the toll on this. I was teaching a course this spring term for students and every week I would check in with them and they are stressed and, and there are, especially with the social movements that are happening like Black Lives Matter, students yeah. are looking for an avenue for social support and our universities and our schools provided that social support, their engagement with their educators, with their colleagues, with their friends, allowed for that dynamic and that no longer exists. So we must get creative in a way to create social supports for them uh, virtually. And one way to do it is to ask, how are you doing? I do this on a uh, almost weekly basis when I meet with my students is really check in with them to figure out uh, where they are and how we can best support their mental health needs. We've often talked about the baby boomers and that, the greatest generation and blah, 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 blah. 
is this generation that we're speaking of, and I, I say this to my kids uh, more as a pat on the back than anything, but I, I said, these guys are the next great generation. You've had it. You've lost it. You've had it taken away. You won't take it for granted. And it's up to you to change the world moving forward. Do you think this generation is the next generation? Not mine, not yours, but the kids coming up. Oh, absolutely. Let me give you an example of that. Last weekend, I was asked to be a mentor for more than 900 students around the world from Stanford University, Harvard, and MIT. And they were tasked with a very tough uh, job, which is to put forward solutions to solve COVID-19 from every angle. And Scott, if you were to read the resolutions and the solutions those students put forward, you have hope. You really do. Hmm. You think to yourself, this generation really knows what needs to be done. They're very socially aware. They're understanding the social determinants of health. They understand the need for research evidence to inform all our policy decisions. And they're ready for the task ahead. And I think exactly how you said it. They've been tested and tried, and they're ready to change things. And we just need to allow them and give them the space for that creativity to happen and to flourish. Once they get over the loss of the graduation ceremonies and everything that went in and along with that, and now looking at even first-year residents and such, uh, once they put all that behind them, I, I really do, do think they will uh, they will be off and running. And, and, you know, as the first crisis of a privileged generation, I think they're going to benefit the most from it. I agree with you strongly, for sure. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, professor all over the world. He is with us now. Ahmad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.